RPG Bot.Podcast. Podcast. I'm Randall James, International Man of Mischief, and with me is Tyler Kempstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Evening. All right, welcome to episode 17, the 18th episode of the RPG Bot.Podcast. Tyler, what are we doing today? Today we're going to talk about lifestyle rules and tabletop RPGs. So this is kind of an underexplored subject because when a lot of people play a tabletop role-playing game, you want to go do the adventure parts. You want to go crawl dungeons and fly spaceships and blow up Death Stars and things like that. And the lifestyle rules kind of get ignored, which I really think is a missed opportunity. And I think if we look at the rules for your character's lifestyle outside of the adventuring parts of the game, there's a lot of room for interesting storytelling there that I'd like to explore today. Okay. I guess that makes sense. I I feel like the lifestyle rules are something that, uh, across any game I've ever played, don't really matter or get used. And I think you're going to try to convince me that I'm wrong. Any table that you're going to sit at to play a role-playing game, you're somewhere on a scale. At one end of that scale is, what is a role? I want to throw dice at things to kill them. And on the other end of that scale is, I am here to spend four hours role-playing and not progress the plot. And both of those are totally valid. Obviously, most games are going to fall somewhere in the middle. But... For kind of the entire left two-thirds of that, you're probably never once going to interact with what your characters do during downtime, because why would I have downtime when I can just go stab another thing? In particular, the the way that Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition short rests and long rests built in, or even if you go back to 3.x with the infamous one-hour adventuring day, realistically, there wasn't a lot of reason to explore downtime. And in particular, there were some adventures that actively discouraged downtime. I mean, if you look at one of the modules that I've talked about before, uh, the Red Hand of Doom, you are on a literal clock because there are goblins invading. With all of that said, I am very excited to explore how you can use that to to tell a better story. So I think it's maybe worth laying out. So we want to talk about uh, lifestyle rules. In in 5e, what is lifestyle rules? Like, what do they account for? It's essentially, I don't know if folks have had this experience in real life, but in real life, every month, there are these people who ask me for money. <laughs> and I have to keep giving to them. And then, like, if they keep asking for more money, I have to go get more money. And it's really frustrating. All right, so 5e gives us, like, this this base idea of, well, you can live like a pauper and it costs you nothing, or you can live and have... You know, do I get a half a chicken wing or do I get a half a chicken? And there's tiers of money that this costs. Is that essentially all there is to lifestyle rules in 5e? It's a little deeper than that. You kind of have to read between the lines in a few places. But that is kind of a problem in a lot of tabletop RPGs where, like, you'll get a couple paragraphs of text on, like, your character is rich or poor or obscenely wealthy or something like that. And then there's not a lot of other detail in there. Some RPGs, lifestyle rules are a little bit more important. Games where survival is more of a central mechanic, kind of a callback to our survival episode, or sorry, food episode, which touched on survival a bit. So games like Forbidden Lands, where survival and food and like making gear and stuff are central parts of the RPG, those are going to have more detailed lifestyle rules than something like 
Pathfinder or D&D 5th Edition. Uh, some games don't even have lifestyle rules at all. Like Fantasy Flight Star Wars games don't really touch on that because your lifestyle is generally like I'm on a spaceship going from adventure to adventure and the Edge of the Empire rule set, the lifestyle costs are kind of just baked into the game. So your party has some nebulous quantity of money that flows in and out, and most of it is dedicated either to just barely surviving or to accomplishing some plot device. So the lifestyle rules aren't really explored beyond what you do in a given session. That that makes sense. And I'll say, so random, you brought up this idea of downtime. And I think, especially in 5e, these things tend to more or less be married at the hip, that you know, where, where does my lifestyle matter? My lifestyle matters when I'm not, you know, roving from dungeon from dungeon or mysterious woods to mysterious woods. It matters when I stop at an inn and I pick if I get the nice room or if I'm sleeping with the donkeys outside. That, that's definitely one part of it. While many adventurers are at least some part murder hobo, there are some who actually live in a place crazy <laughs> Tyler the, the paladin that we've talked about Tyler having in, in my Rise of the Rune Lords campaign owned a home in Sandpoint and had a wife who lived there that's its own story <laughs> when you are not in a dungeon it is worth spending time exploring what your character does for a number of reasons I mean it, it's not just like oh downtime I can do cool mechanical things this is how you can be, flesh this character out as an actual person. This is where maybe this is someone who is married to their work and they just spend the entire time crafting a suit of armor or practicing their sword drills, whatever. But even so, you are going to have to figure out where do I sleep at night. And that can generate a lot of interesting conflict because... What if different party members do different lifestyles? What if somebody is staying in their townhouse on the other side of town and two people are staying in the inn and one person is sleeping in a hut? That's the the different lifestyle costs basically call out like those different sorts of things. If you get attacked in the middle of the night, there is a very valid reason why the party is split and that's a thing that maybe they haven't thought about. Like, oh, I actually have to spend money to not split the party at night. There's a lot of interesting things that this lifestyle rule can lead to. And there's something in particular from the section of the wealthiest line in the tier. I forget what it's called. It basically talks about the more money you have, the more extravagant your lifestyle the more likely you are to be embroiled in political intrigue, either as someone actively participating or as a pawn. And that's literally just, like, story right there. Go. Just handed to you. There's a lot that can be done with it. It's just that the DM has to make a big paradigm shift away from, yes, let's get to the next encounter, to how do I take these choices that these people have made and make them relevant. Okay. Random's got it exactly right. There's a bit more that we can build out from just, like, that one line on the aristocratic tier. Uh, So let's dig into the mechanics just a little bit. And I want to start with Pathfinder 2nd Edition here, uh, and we will get back to 5e, I promise. 
Pathfinder 2nd Edition, as I've said on previous episodes, famously, there's rules for just about everything. They're usually very thorough, intricate, and interesting. And here's another weird place where there really isn't much to bite into. Pathfinder 2nd Edition's cost of living mechanics, which is basically just how much your lifestyle costs, there are four tiers ranging from basically homeless to nobility. We get the one-word name for each tier, and that's basically it. You get a one-word name and a gold piece cost. There isn't even a description that says, like, here's what you might expect to experience at these levels. Yeah, there's, like, no thread count. (laughs) Yes, there's no thread count for your sheets, ranging from sackcloth to uh, beyond physics. I've imported silk from beyond space and time. At the lowest tier, you can subsist, which is the equivalent of making a survival check to live wherever you are. So it's like, I'm in a city, I'm literally going to go beg people for food and housing, or if you're out in the wilderness, like, I'm going to eat whatever I can catch with my bare hands. Uh, Very strange diet, chasing squirrels with your hands. The lifestyle rules for Pathfinder explicitly expect that the characters aren't living in one place most of the time. The lifestyle rules say that you should only use them for longer periods of time, such as if the players are living in a place for months or years between doing adventures or whatever, and the rest of the time just pay for food and lodging at an inn whenever it comes up. Pathfinder has leaned very hard into the the idea that the characters are murder hobos. They're going to go do some murder hoboing. This probably won't matter. Don't worry about it too much. But at the same time, they gave us some cool numbers on how much things cost. And I did the math. A 20th level character with starting gold for a 20th level character can live for 21 and a half years at the highest highest lifestyle point. If you're an elf, you're going to need a job. I I will say, and just a couple things that you talked about. First off, because my brain is a odd place, demon web silk sheets. (laughs) Beside that, it's interesting that you call out that that the lowest tier is what a survival check gets you because in fifth edition, it is very much not, it is explicitly called out. Like a survival check gets you like middle tier. You don't even need a check. It is just proficiency in survival gets you comfortable, which is like a decent room at an inn and a reasonable amount of food, which is always sort of interesting to me because that means that simply being proficient in survival you just casually build cottages wherever you go. <laughs> anyway. Maybe you just know how to build a tent. I don't know. There you go. So so the expected income changes with with the level in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Is that right? Yeah, it does in 5th Edition as well. It's, it's basically an exponential curve that curves upward as you gain levels, so you'll get larger and larger sums of gold. In Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you start with something like 100... I think it's 100 gold pieces. It might be 100 silver. Oh, gosh. Uh, I can't remember now, now that you asked me. But but at a higher level, like, the expectation is, is that the DM is either going to, in loot or quest rewards, is meant to give you about that much gold with the understanding that you're then going to turn that gold back into the local economy by getting uh, demon web silk sheets. <laughs> And the, the finest pheasants that that particular inn has at a given time, right? You're going to order bottles of wine instead of bottles of beer, on and on. Yeah. And, and so you're just, you're churning that money back into the, yeah, the trickle-down economics of the region. <laughs> yes, oh, the, no. the 20th level adventurer <laughs> walks into the, the village of 100 people and says, Hi, I'd like to buy a plus three longsword, please. Who's got one? And Okay, so I, I guess I'll ask the question... 
Yeah, has this impacted the way that you've played a game? Uh, unfortunately, no. I've never been fortunate enough to play in a game where we've explored the lifestyle rules. Like Random said, the Rise of the Rune Lords game that we that he ran several years ago at this point, my character ended up married, owned a couple houses, had children, ran a business, did those things. But it was all kind of like weird plot rewards that my character always ended up with for some reason. It was never actually like, here are the lifestyle rules. We're going to dedicate time to this. Yeah, it's a very strange character. Yeah, nobody was coming after you for HOA dues on that house that you were keeping your wife in, uh, and nobody was also making you do the accounting for upkeep and this sort of thing. But well, I mean, the, <laughs> my character I, I, was an accountant. Yeah, so <laughs> he was a paladin of the god of accounting, which he was the actual. Uh, in fact, I believe, yes, if I recall his his original backstory correctly, he was actually sent to Sandpoint to be the tax collector. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so if 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 people have used uh the tool on rpgbot.net the quartermancer it's an automated tool for liquidating and distributing loot through your party fairly essentially make sure that everyone gets the same amount of value from their gold it's great for like third edition pathfinder shadow run some other rpgs pathfinder second edition not for 5e because the magic items work weird but I, I named and built that for this character. That's something. I think <laughs> it, we we can all agree. It sure is. <laughs> it was. <laughs> okay. Cool. And, and so are there any things that surprise you about Pathfinder 2nd Edition's cost of living mechanics? Kind of just how shallow they are. I really wish that they'd given us, like, a sentence of description to tell us what each of these tiers mean, except for subsistence. Like, you could very easily just go into 5e, take every other tier, and just steal that description, and it'll work fine. But I feel like rules usually go the opposite direction when you're comparing the two rule sets, so it's super weird. Yeah, I think it it also, and I think I've said this on other rules where we feel like the rule set is pretty light, it it feels like the game designers just didn't think this was a super important part of the game. Yeah, and I think that's right. Like I said, they do explicitly say in the rules you should only use the lifestyle and cost of living mechanics for longer periods of downtime. They very clearly didn't think, oh yeah, my my character lives in random, help me out, what's that big city that starts with an M south of Sandpoint? Magnar? That's the one, yeah. None of our characters are going to set up a permanent apartment in Magnamar and just make that their base of operations and live out of there. Like, no one wants to run that game, clearly. Although, yeah, I think that's that's even interesting, right? This idea of, it's like, well, I could choose to live in Sandpoint because it has a lower cost of living, uh, so my silver is going to go farther. But all of the best adventuring is coming out of, would you say, Magmar? Yeah, uh, close well, that, that's a Pokemon, but sure. <laughs> yeah. Hey, if their population increases enough, they'll evolve to Magmortar. <laughs> and this is where you figure out that one of the few non-tabletop role-playing game sections of uh, RPG Bot is about Pokemon. <laughs> Realistically, I think that the big reason why this doesn't get explored more is because the default expectation for role-playing game isn't about that. And spoilers for when I push these people to do a first-time DMing episode. Realistically, if you talk to your players and say, hey, I want to include sections where we're talking about downtime, good, and you get the buy-in on that, you can craft some really interesting story around that. In fact, switching back to 5th edition for a second, 
the different backgrounds, if I am remembering where this is correctly, have different suggested lifestyle tiers that you that you live on, which makes perfect sense, right? So, you know, if you take the noble background, yeah, you're not going to go from being a noble to suddenly wandering around dumpster diving on a daily basis for your food. You are accustomed to nice things. You are accustomed to sleeping in a soft bed. If you actually, a sort of running theme here, if you take the rules that they gave you and actually enforce them, then you can end up causing people to experience things that they're not used to where they have to engage with their character, where they have to think things through in a way that can generate some really interesting things. Like I talked about, you know, like maybe the party is split for this reason or the druid gets to have some interesting encounter in the middle of the night with somebody wandering past the edge of town because the druid's like, nah, man, I am not sleeping in a building. Y'all crazy. That's where the ghosts are. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The ghosts of animals past. While we do have these seven tiers and, and they do have vague descriptions, there's more there than you might expect from just the sentence or two. And in particular, if you combine that with the suggested tier that you can find in other places, you start to gain more of a broader picture of how this could be useful in your game. I want to challenge this a little bit practically. Let's say that I come from a noble background I grew up with wealth. I have a lot of money. Unless the story is taking me somewhere near home, how am I refilling my wallet? That's kind of a... That's actually a really good setting question. Answering that question could tell you something about your setting. Like, if your character is from a noble family and they have infinitely deep pockets for, you know, at least to cover their lifestyle expenses... Maybe you maybe you have to establish that your setting has a network of banks. Maybe there's some sort of government infrastructure to support like letters of writ or whatever those are called. Basically, medieval checks. Like, I here's my traveler's check. I'm going to stay at this inn for the next six months. I'll be gone tomorrow, but I'm staying here for six months and I'm going to pay for it because I can. Yeah, yeah like Eberron is explicitly has a bank with multiple branches all over the place so like instead of getting handed yes here's 500 gold yes 10 pounds of gold in a sack here's this check go deal with it yourself i I think that having that be a setting exploration is is really cool because one of the other things that it could be is a sufficiently powerful house is going to have retainers and it is very easy to have a retainer be ah yes I am a wizard. I can just teleport this bag somewhere and poof, you have money with what a, a pair of, so God, I haven't thought about spell ranges in a while, but so I think <laughs> scrying works anywhere on the plane, something like that. And then there is not the cantrip version where you m- message somebody like a hundred feet, but sending is sending the, yeah, the longer range one. If you get a sending from, the baron of the the you know the barony next door saying hi my son's there take care of him you're gonna say yes sir and then money will get to you eventually <laughs> but, but the consequences of saying no are so drastic i feel like i mean even that actually you know talking about rp that could be a lot of fun because like yeah you know the baron always eventually pays but he tends to pay like six months from now and six months from now you're gonna eat me out of house and home 
So I don't love having you here. And that would be an awesome story to tell, honestly. Exactly. You, you have, <laughs> in a single sentence, you have described a way that, to take this story and make it into something fun. All right. So, so maybe there is something we can do with this. I feel like maybe that's what you're trying to tell me. Okay. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask kind of a character question. So everyone listening at home and Randall and Random, both of you as well, think, what is my current character? Like, think about the character you're current, I'm currently playing, and then ask yourself, where do they live? And where did they live before that? And weirdly, those details get ignored a lot in people's backstories. Like, you'll get a lot of things about what the character did and what they've experienced and where they have been, but frequently where they live right now or where they have lived previously is just kind of ignored. Like Random said, there are some backgrounds in 5th edition that kind of establish it. If you're a noble, you probably lived somewhere fancy. If you're a hermit, you didn't. And then just the details of where your character lived at various points in their life can say a lot about their life experiences and who they are. Like, did they live in a townhome in some major city? Did they live in a a one-room shack in some, like, lumber town or something like that? Those things do a lot to define your character's experiences, and using the lifestyle rules will carry those experiences into the ongoing game. Yeah, I think I think that makes perfect sense. And I think maybe the challenge is, you know, working within your setting, working within the campaign to make those details matter. But I think you're probably going to have a richer game if you find a way to do that. One of my favorite fixes that I've talked about on in previous episodes, at least for 5th edition, the gritty realism variant, which is, again, intended... It's intended to affect how healing works rather than affecting anything else. In short version, a short rest takes eight hours, a long rest takes seven days, and usually needs to happen somewhere safe, like a town or a home base or something. Bringing that rule into your game also makes makes it very convenient to introduce the lifestyle rules into your game. Because if your characters need to go back to town for a week at a time, they're probably not going to want to pay for staying at an inn seven nights at a time, three or four times a month. Like what? It'll get very expensive very quickly. So setting up some kind of permanent home might actually be an interesting and useful thing for the party. Now, that won't work in every game. Random brought up Hand of Red Doom, or sorry, Red Hand of Doom earlier. And that's a game where downtime will absolutely kill you because the game itself is on a clock. Things happen at specific times because there is an army coming and it's not going to do the Skyrim thing. We're like, oh, yeah, uh, if you want to go hunt mud crabs for 100 years, the plot will just sit right here and wait for you. Like, no, not every game is like that. Not a perfect fix, but gritty realism gives you a lot of space in the pacing of the game to explore things like background, sorry, downtime rules, lifestyle rules, other things like that. So I think I really like the idea of that. I can imagine having like a table in front of me. Basically, if you pay more money for a nicer place to stay, it is less likely that your seven days of long rest get interrupted with something that make you start over. Now that's a good idea. Yeah, just simple mechanical benefits for spending more money on your lifestyle are a great way to encourage people to to pay for a better lifestyle. In 5th edition, you'll have a lot of options to just get a lifestyle for free. Rand pointed out earlier, survival gets you, I think, comfortable was the one. Yep. Something 
comfortable. Thank you. And then if you're proficient in performance, I think you get wealthy by default. So way to go, bards. So it's pretty easy to get a reasonably high lifestyle and the per day cost isn't massive, especially considering how difficult it is to use gold for anything meaningful in 5th edition. I did the math on this because I'm crazy like that. A 20th level character has enough gold to live at the highest lifestyle cost for 52 years and change, and that's before you start selling off your magic items. The lifestyle costs aren't crazy expensive, but they're expensive enough that at low levels, you're not going to be like, yeah, I'm level two. I'd like to be an aristocrat and spend 10 gold pieces a day to have people shine my shoes or whatever. The plot options that each tier can give you are really interesting. Just grab the player's handbook, open up the equipment section, find the lifestyle expenses, read the descriptions in there. I'm not going to read two pages of the player's handbook into a podcast because bad podcasting, but there are some interesting plot hooks in here that are really worth exploring. Okay. No, I think that's great. So I think an- another tool that I've seen that I feel like is at least tangential to this, and I'll make an argument that it's almost like a suitable replacement for lifestyle rules. Uh, so Acquisitions Incorporated. It's a really, really fun source book that a lot of people kind of just ignored. Yeah, I mean, the idea that like, well, why am I adventuring? What motivates me? And usually that's the campaign, right? There's some reason that we're going to go do the thing. I feel like a lot of uh, a lot of books are basically, I am trapped here and I want to be there. And so how do I get there uh, as quickly as possible? What this is doing is it's basically saying, right, let's, you're going to start a franchise. You're going to grow a business and you're going to climb the ranks. And so as the same way that you have your class, you have this other role, uh, whether it's, you know, you're the what, cartographer or the CEO or whatever it might be, um, you have an important role to fulfill. And your goal is to grow the company, grow the influence of your franchise versus the competing franchises around you. And so now, you know, marrying lifestyle rules to the money that you're willing to spend to maintain your lifestyle, now it's not, you're not hustling for your end stay. You're hustling to grow your business and climb the corporate ranks. I'm sorry. I just, I have to bring this full circle for a second or my head will explode. You mentioned (laughs) Acquisitions Incorporated. Acquisitions Incorporated included a character played by Patrick Rothfuss. Patrick Rothfuss famously wrote the King Killers series where the character had to do exactly what you were just describing a significant part of the first book is him figuring out how to have the money to live in his very expensive college town acquisitions inc doing that makes my day there's another (laughs) thing that i have talked about uh in in past and if you haven't listened it's maybe worth um checking out pathfinder had a third-party campaign uh, called Way of the Wicked that included an evil organization set of rules. That would be very easy to import into 5th edition if you wanted to figure out another way to have a charismatic character take this idea of let's actually make money and then you know have this be something that I'm doing vaguely off screen but one of the cool things that having something like a an organization or a a business does is it gives you npcs you're invested in which if you remember from the fear episode i don't actually remember what we called it um horror no fright uh i think we called it fear help my brain is full of um actually that's that's what the episode was called help (laughs) beautiful my brain is full of adjectives 
when you give people NPCs that they are invested in, then all of a sudden, if you can threaten one of these NPCs as part of your your story writing, you can threaten the organization. It is worth noting that there are also rules in this uh, rules for this in 3.x if you are still playing 3.5. I think the DMG2 had rules for creating a business. They were not well made. <laughs> they were very broken. You could generate a lot of money very quickly yes. in a in a system where money actually mattered. But with that said, it, you know at least props to Watsi for trying. But but yeah, there's there's definitely a couple places where you can find these sorts of systems and, and bring in because uh, yeah, fifth edition very flexible in the sort of stuff you import. I read this in a Reddit thread recently. There's a there's a weird loop in the Pathfinder First Edition rules for, I, I can't remember if it's actually called lifestyle, but you can own a manor or whatever, and if you own structures of various size and pay to maintain, then you get certain benefits. So one of the benefits is you could just search your household for items. So like the most expensive thing you can live in, you can search and find items of such and such value in such and such amount of time. And people have figured out that if you spend about 10 minutes a day searching your house for spiked gauntlets and then selling them, that will pay for your lifestyle. So you you have this dumb infinite loop where you just keep finding spiked gauntlets under couches and stuff and selling it to pay for your house. Obviously, there's a spiked gauntlet mine somewhere in the basement. Clearly. And my butler is just mining it and re-armoring all of my, or re-gauntleting uh, all of my armor set pieces or whatever just very silly uh it is difficult to make those running a business rules work in games that are fundamentally about adventuring so it's kind of not surprising that they don't always work perfectly and sometimes they'll throw off the math but yeah the acquisitions incorporated rules for running essentially an adventurer's guild are really interesting both because they offer some interesting plot points, some interesting storytelling devices, a way to bring a party together, a way to bring in new characters as necessary. And yeah, they give you a way to make your your lifestyle meaningful. Like my franchise is set up in Waterdeep. I need an apartment near the office so my commute is short. And what's that going to cost me? And that's part of your character's lifestyle and says a lot about who they are and what they do in the game. Yeah, or like I need to run a protection for a dignitary coming in. I've been paid to make sure nothing happens. And so that I put them in my safe house and I hope that goes okay. <laughs> yeah, actually I, I really like it. I mean, this is maybe off topic, but I really like it. it. It gives you a nice structure to essentially do like a monster of the week or dungeon of the week. You know, here's your challenge of the week and we don't need anything to motivate us other than greed. <laughs> that is actually one thing that the rules from the DMG2, the 3.5 DMG2 did cover is like that basically your business would get random encounters and and you could have like bad stuff happens and you got to deal with it or you know sometimes good stuff happens. Yeah. If you can find a DMG2 and you want ideas for this sort of thing, it's there. Yeah. The uh, game it, tries uh insurance <laughs> fraud. Oh no. Yeah, it's just title every session on that uh the game tries blank. And yeah, the DMG2 is available as a PDF on DMs Guild currently. I don't think they have it available in print-on-demand, but it's probably worth a look. The PDFs are pretty cheap. So there are some other some other benefits that maybe we haven't quite dug into that we can offer for lifestyle rules. 
So the fifth edition lifestyle rules do talk about like at the aristocratic tier, which is the very top one, you might get dragged into political intrigue, but it's like the benefits are kind of vaguely defined. You as a DM might decide to offer specific benefits to characters living at each tier. Access to just things that you can buy, equipment and services, like maybe you can buy fancier clothes, maybe you have access to a magic item market that's only available to nobles because they know you have money to spend. Maybe you have access to services because as like some minor nobility, you know a couple of professional spellcasters who are also rich, and you can be like, hey man, uh, I'll make you dinner if you come over and cast sending for me or something like that. If you're sufficiently rich, your household might have uh, hirelings, servants, butlers, porters, etc. People who can haul loot around for you and maintain your house and go deliver letters when you can't cast sending. Things like that. And then just access to opportunity. Being sufficiently recognized, sufficiently well-off, and like having the right connections can give you opportunities to maybe you find out about a, a quest before the competing adventurers guild does. Maybe you find out about some cool book or some magic item that you really want because like, Oh yeah. Um, uh, some noble paid some adventurers to go scout out this item and you find out about it from them. And you're like, ah, I'm going to go steal this guy's magic item before his, his hired adventurers can at the higher end of things. There are a lot of opportunities you can offer, and even at the lower tiers, sure, you can offer penalties like, ah, yes, you're you're poor, so you're frequently robbed in the middle of the night, and keeping shoes is very difficult. But you might have a network of contacts who are street children who you use as spies and pickpockets to maintain a network of information through a city that you live in. So you can make each of those tiers interesting with just a little bit of thought, but it might require some discussion with your players about how much they're willing to engage with these systems. And whenever you do homebrew rules, it's really important that they feel fair. So make sure you work it out with your group. Try to set things down in writing as much as you can and make adjustments where necessary. Yeah, that makes good sense. And if you're engaging in this, then you can really like let every character shine in whatever the background is to have something that leverage. But I think if, if we're going to do, if we're going to add these sorts of things like access to this market, I think there also probably has to be some kind of responsibility to it and potential penalty if it's abused or misused. Essentially making it feel like a reward and it's something that the character has to sustain versus something they wrote on the character sheet on day one and, and just get to live with the benefit of. Exactly. Okay. All right. I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think we did it. So that's exciting. Uh, we have a question of the week this week. Let's see. So we've actually got two. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on the first one real quick. So from F underscore Capomax on Twitter, do you use 5e's variant flanking rule? What do you think about it? We had a good chat about this one before we recorded tonight, and we decided that this and other variant rules in 5th edition justify their own episodes. So look forward to that sometime very soon. But uh, it's a the discussion is a little bit longer than we wanted to fit into this episode. Basically, Tyler doesn't want me to rant for half an hour at the end of an episode. <laughs> He's not wrong. Um, so we're going to go to our second question of the week. This is from Kevin Lowman sixty on Twitter. How does Five E's Soul Knife work with opportunity attacks and extra attack? I will start off touching on this as uh, someone in a game with a Soul Knife right now. 
The short answer is not well, at least for the opportunity attacks. Extra attack works fine. 5e is soul knife. You generate the blades as part of attacking. The problem with that is that the way it's worded is when you are not performing an attack on your turn, you don't have your side blades. And so you are effectively unarmed between when you attack on your turn to when you attack on your next turn. And so if somebody does provoke an attack opportunity moving away from you or you know whatever else may happen, unless you do some shenanigans, you basically have to punch them. Now, the good news is you can still sneak attack with punching. Uh, so you're, you're uh, no, 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 you can't. It has to be, it has to be a weapon and it has to have either the light or finesse properties or light finesse or oh. ranged, I believe. So and, uh, that's right. You, you only get, you only get decks on unarmed. If you're, if you're a monk and even then monk. it doesn't qualify cause it's, it still doesn't have the qualifying properties because it still doesn't have finesse and it's still not a weapon. Technically unarmed strikes aren't a <sighs> weapon, even though they make weapon attacks. It's a, it's a very important, but frustrating rules distinction. Well, there you go. Yeah. You have, you basically have to cheese it if you want to do that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so here's some annoying cheese. So what you can do is essentially juggle a weapon. So, Turn one, you start unarmed. You attack, you wave your your hands and soul knives about. At the end of your turn, your soul knives go away, and then you use your free item interaction to draw a weapon. At the begin and then you have a weapon throughout the next the rest of the round. Beginning of your next turn, you put the weapon away and attack. Unfortunately, you only get one free item interaction per turn, so you're out of luck for the turn after that. But you can have a weapon in your hand to make opportunity attacks with 50% of the time. I'm, I'm seeing some very disappointed shaking heads. I feel like it, it deserves that. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Okay. All right. With that said, <laughs> I, I will say, you know, having seen a Soul Knife played and, and having read through Soul Knife, while this is certainly frustrating, the subclass is still very fun to play. It is still very mechanically strong, so I wouldn't let this stop you from trying Soul Knife if you are interested in it. It's just kind of dumb. <laughs> I guess I yeah. And, I, I was gonna hold my tongue. Let's go ahead and I'm gonna stick my foot in it. Can we just let people punch people? Yes. Yeah. And, and th- this is exactly what I was about to say. It's like realistically, this is a thing that you know you can talk to your DM and say, "Hey DM, the way they wrote this is dumb." Can we let me hold a dagger all the time so that I can still attack of opportunity like a normal person? With that said, I mean, if your DM says no, if you are allowed to use the alternative, the alternate class feature, take aim is really strong with Soul Knife because you can just use your bonus action to take aim instead of offhand attack, which means that you can just have a real dagger in your, your offhand the whole time. And then you're getting your advantage on your attack to be able to sneak attack anyway. There's still ways around it, even if your DM is going to be super stickler about it. Realistically, I, again, I'm 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 going to advocate for the talk it out here because don't punish your your rogue just because they want to do spooky, you know, mind blades. Okay, and I think that's something we can all agree to. <laughs> All right, that's our show today. Uh, thanks for joining. Uh, next episode, we're going to talk about downtime rules. So please join us for that. 
I'm Randall James. You'll find me at AmateurJack.com and at JackAmateur on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Tyler Kamster. You'll find me at RPGBot.net on Twitter and Facebook at RPGBOTDOTNET and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. And I'm Random Powell. If you have find me, please let me know how. Realistically, it's probably either going to be here contributing to the podcast or on RPGBot.net writing some articles. Uh, also, if you look in places where people play games, I'm usually there as Harlequin or Harlequin. All right. Uh, this was made in conjunction with producer Dan. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. Uh, you'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in show notes. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. Uh, you'll find our podcast wherever fine podcasts are distributed. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe and share it with your friends. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Thanks, folks. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details